Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24? For those of you who are new, we've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. For those of you who are regulars, I apologize, I keep repeating this intro, but we have to bring people up to speed who are new. So for those of you who are new with us, we want to just let you know that for the last few weeks we've been studying Matthew chapter 24 which contains a prophetic teaching that Jesus gave his disciples, revealing to them the signs that would precede his second coming to the earth to establish the kingdom. And as we have mentioned in verses 4 to 14, the Lord Jesus gives a quick overview of the final seven years that would lead up to his return. He divides it into two halves. The first three and a half years he talks about in verses 4 to 8 and calls them the beginning of sorrows. The last three and a half years he talks about briefly in verses 9 to 14 and calls these years great tribulation. And as we have pointed out, the seven-year period of judgment will start out mild, I guess, if you can use that term. Judgment is really never mild, but it will start out more mild in the beginning. But then as the world works its way into the second half of the tribulation period, these judgments are going to become ever more frequent and intense culminating, as I just said, with the return of Jesus Christ to the planet Earth to establish the millennial kingdom. Now, in verses 15 to 28, Jesus zeroes in after he gives us a quick overview of the entire seven years. Then in verses 15 to 28, he zeroes in on the last three and a half years to amplify them, to give us greater insight into this period of great tribulation and uh, what it will mean to the Jewish people primarily, who would be living on the earth at that time. Now, we've already studied all that. So this morning, we come to verse 29, where Jesus said, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, I believe that this corresponds to what we've already looked at in the book of Revelation chapter 6. I believe chapter 6 of Revelation corresponds with Matthew 24. And in particular, I see what Jesus has just talked about in Matthew 24. I think it corresponds to the sixth seal. The sixth seal in Revelation 6, verses 12 to 14. Let me read it to you. Where John said, I looked when he opened the sixth seal. He is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I looked when Jesus opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place." In Matthew 24 and in Revelation 6, when it talks about stars falling from heaven or from outer space uh, to the earth, obviously it's not referring to literal stars. The Greek word there is a stare, and it's a word that means a shining heavenly body. And I believe it could be a reference to meteors falling on the earth, or it could be that the earth at this point passes through the tail of a giant comet, big enough that if it came close enough to the earth, the gravitational forces would trigger massive earthquakes, as Revelation says will occur on the earth uh, at this time. Or, of course, John, to whom this vision was given, 
might have seen a group of asteroids uh, striking the Earth. And it looked like they were stars as they entered into the atmosphere and began to burn up. If the asteroids were big enough, they could affect the rotation and even the tilt of the Earth. Could this be what Isaiah had in mind as he prophesies about this very period in Isaiah 24, verse 20, when he said, and I quote, The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it, indicating God is judging the earth for its sin. And it will fall, the earth will fall and not rise again. We know, in fact, as I before I came to service this morning, I just checked the news, and apparently there is a giant asteroid that's coming close to the earth. Don't, don't get worried, it's not going to hit us. Uh, it's going to pass by about 777,000 miles from Earth. You say, well, that's a long way away. Not in cosmic terms, okay? Uh, it's close. It's only three times uh, farther than the moon. Uh, that's close in, uh, you're talking about cosmic terms. But, um, so they wanted to reassure people, look, it's not going to hit the Earth. But scientists know it's only a matter of time before one of these things strikes the Earth. They're just waiting for it to happen. I've heard them say it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Now, we know that in Revelation it talks about, as John sees something, he describes as a giant mountain burning with fire that falls into the sea. What could that be but a giant meteor or asteroid that enters the Earth's atmosphere, begins to burn up, and then strikes the sea and does so much devastation? Uh, The book of Revelation says that it just the earth is just massively affected. In fact, earlier in that prophecy in Isaiah 24, it says that something is going to happen to the earth, something is going to hit it so hard, the earth is going to split open. So we know that these, you know, and Jesus just gives us a very quick summary statement in Matthew 24. Revelation expands on these cataclysmic judgments and so on, all right? But in Revelation 6, verse 14, John said, then the, then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Look, you remember when Mount St. Helens uh, exploded on May 18, 1980 in uh, Washington State? The explosion was so powerful it was the equivalent of a 50 megaton bomb. A 1 megaton bomb is 50 times stronger than the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. If you can get your mind around that. One of our Calvary pastors was living in the area when Mount St. Helens exploded. And he said, for days the sun was blacked out with falling ash and the moon at night looked blood red. In August of 1883, when Krakatoa, the volcanic island in the Pacific, exploded, that explosion was so powerful it was heard 3,000 miles away. It changed tide 7,000 miles away in both directions. It sent a tidal wave 1,500 miles and changed the weather on the earth for two full years. And that's just one volcanic eruption. I mean, Revelation says that that blast, although it was pretty severe, uh, what's coming is going to make that look like a firecracker. And of course, all these cosmic and cataclysmic events will create great fear in the hearts of those living through these judgments. Even as Jesus said, In Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 26, he said men's hearts will be failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven 
will be shaken. So there are some incredible things coming upon the earth. Well, back in Matthew 24, verse 30, Jesus said, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What launched the Lord Jesus Christ into this teaching about the signs that would precede his coming was a question the disciples asked him in response to something he had said at the end of chapter 23. He said, I'm going away, and you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, the disciples are just heartbroken. They can't believe what he's just said. They were expecting him to set the kingdom up. You can't go away, Lord. You're supposed to set the kingdom up, you know? All right, chapter 24 opens up. Tell us what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And he gives them all these signs that we've been studying the last few weeks. And then he gives them the ultimate, unmistakable sign of his coming, which is the Lord himself coming, shining like the sun, the Shekinah glory of God, God's resplendent glory. Jesus said, when I come back, you're going to know it. Every eye is going to see it. Uh, like lightning flashes across a dark sky from east to west, every eye is going to see me come. I'm not going to tiptoe into some secret chamber, as we talked about earlier. He said, if somebody says the Christ is here, he's in the inner room, don't believe that. Because when I come back, everyone's going to see me. I mean, it's gonna, I'm going to light the sky up with my second coming Shekinah. Glory is the idea. Now, when Jesus comes to the earth, this event is going to have special meaning for Israel. Because Jesus is going to return, Zechariah 12 tells us, he's going to return when Israel is just about to be defeated by the armies of the Antichrist, who is trying his best to kill every Jew he can get his hands on. And he's got them cornered somewhere, and the armies of the Antichrist are about ready to finish them off, when suddenly, and here's the thing you have to understand, when Jesus said, I'm going away, you've rejected me as your Messiah, I won't be bringing the kingdom. In fact, I'm not going to come back until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Zechariah tells us that they're going to have their backs up against the wall. Their enemies, I'm thinking the forces of the Antichrist, are about ready to strike the death blow to the Jewish people. What do they do? In desperation, they cry out to God for mercy and to send a deliverer. You see, Israel today is a secular state for the most part. And even though their birth was miraculous, and their continuance is a miracle. Yet they still believe, for the most part, that it's their strength as a people that has caused them to have victory over their enemies, who outnumber them many times over. And so God allows the Antichrist to bring them to a point of utter destruction, where they have no recourse. They're helpless now. They're goners. And then broken, in humility, it says in Zechariah that I'm not going to return until you petition God to send me. And they petition the Lord to send Messiah. And Jesus comes, breaks through the clouds, right when the Antichrist is ready to, to, to strike the death blow to the nation. And he rescues his people. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The very thing he said they would say to bring him back. And at that time, the Lord Jesus rescues his people, Israel, from the Antichrist. Verse 31. 
And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, when you read the phrase his elect in verse 31, again, let me just say, this is not a reference to the church. The church was taken to heaven seven years prior to this and is now coming back with the Lord. We don't see it here in verse 31, just says the Son of Man is coming. We know from Revelation 19, he's coming with his church, his bride, to establish his kingdom upon the earth. He's not coming to the church. He's coming with the church who has been taken to be with him seven years earlier. So his elect here doesn't refer to the church, even though it seems to, but rather his elect refers to people on the earth, both Jew and Gentiles, who put their faith in him and became tribulation saints. In other words, people who got saved during the tribulation period. However, however, I want you to understand that Jesus' reference to the elect in verses 22, 24, and now 31 has primarily Israel in view. In Isaiah 45, verse 4, God called Israel my elect. God called Israel my elect, Isaiah 45, verse 4. And I say this, because many Christians, when they read the elect in Matthew 24, automatically assume the Lord is talking about the church. And I will grant you that the church is made up of those who are called the elect in the New Testament. But the church is gone. She's been taken. All right. Here the context is primarily believing Israel. Since Matthew 24, as we've already pointed out numerous times, is Jewish territory. Jewish territory. Listen to what he says. He's going to send his angels, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Notice how that language mirrors the language of the prophets who prophesied about this time. You don't have to turn to these. I'll give you a couple. Zechariah 2, verse 6, where the Lord said, Up, up, flee from the land of the north. Talking about the Jewish people, says the Lord. For I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. And then in Isaiah 11, verse 12, God said, I will gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Guys, these are Jewish believers. He sends his angels out to gather from all over the world to bring them to Jerusalem to worship the Lord and to witness the establishment of the kingdom which God had promised them way back when they first became his covenant people. Once again, Jesus references this gathering. He says in verse 31, He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Look, we must not confuse the trumpet of Matthew 24, verse 31, with the trumpet of God mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. Why don't you turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. I know this is familiar territory to most of you, but let's read it together. In 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 16, Paul the Apostle said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive and remain together, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 
and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Again, the term caught up, harpazo in the Greek, means to be snatched away quickly. In the Latin Vulgate, it's the word rapio, from which we get the word rapture. So when people tell you rapture is not even in the Bible, well, the word rapture is not in our English versions. It appears in the Latin Vulgate, though. And it's the equivalent of the Greek word harpazo, which means to be taken quickly. This is when the church is raptured off the earth. At this point, Jesus comes for his church. At the end of the tribulation, he comes with his church. Two separate events. Don't confuse the rapture with the second coming. But the trumpet of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 is going to occur at the rapture of the church, which takes place before the seven-year tribulation period gets going, gets started. And the seven-year tribulation period is the context of Matthew 24. Now, the trumpet of Matthew 24, verse 31, takes place at the end of the tribulation period. And listen to me. I believe could in fact happen during the actual Feast of Trumpets, which takes place in late September or early October. Now, here's the thing. Remember the seven feasts that God gave to Israel in Leviticus 23. Those seven feasts relate to Jesus' first and second comings, because the first three, Passover, Unleavened Bread, Feast of first fruits, they speak of his first coming. He was crucified on Passover, buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and resurrected on the Feast of Firstfruits. On the very days. Fifty days later, we have the Feast of Pentecost when the church was born. What comes between Jesus' first and second coming? The church age. In the fall, you have three more feasts. You have trumpets, you have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and you have tabernacles. Now, if Jesus fulfilled in his first coming the first three feasts to the day, why wouldn't he fulfill in some ways those last three feasts to the days? So sometime in that period, he's going to fulfill these last three in his second coming. And I believe the trumpet of Matthew 24, 31 could take place during the very Feast of Trumpets. Let me just stop. I'm not going to give you a big teaching on this, but I want to kind of, kind of let you know just quickly uh, what this all means. First of all, you talk about trumpets. There are two kinds of trumpets that were used in Israel's religious services. The first one was a long, flared trumpet made of silver. We see this in Numbers 10, verse 2. And the other, the one we're more familiar with, was a ram's horn. The Hebrew word is shofar. And listen, it was the shofar that was blown during the Feast of Trumpets. The blowing of the trumpet in ancient Israel had two primary functions. First, it was to call a solemn assembly. When God wanted to assemble his people at the tabernacle and later on the temple for a solemn assembly, he would have the priest blow the shofar. Also, we know from the book of Joshua and Gideon that the shofar was also blown when, when God wanted to mobilize his people for battle. But here, I believe, the blowing of the shofar during the Feast of Trumpets looks forward to a future day when the trumpet of God will sound and call the people of God to a sacred, a solemn assembly. And we see it in Matthew 24, verse 31. The trumpet will sound. The angels will be dispersed. They will gather dispersed jewelry from all over the world back to the land of Israel to worship the Lord and to witness the establishment of his kingdom after, underline that, after the Antichrist armies have been destroyed. 
When Jesus comes back, Revelation 19 tells us the first thing he's going to do, he's going to fight with the armies. Not, not much of a battle, by the way. He's going to fight against all the forces that have gathered to go to war against his people and against him personally. He will fight against them with the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. That's just a metaphor for the word of God. The same word that spoke the universe into existence, the same word that holds it all together by the same word of his power is going to speak the word and his enemies are going to be wiped out instantly. And after they are, he's going to dispatch his angels who are going to gather from all over the world Jewish believers, bring them to Israel whereby they can have a sacred assembly of worship to the Lord and witness him establishing the kingdom which they've waited for for thousands of years. We read about this in Isaiah 27 verse 13. I'll just read it to you. So it shall be in that day. What day? The day we're just talking about. The great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, modern Iraq, by the way, and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt and shall come and worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. In other words, they're about to perish. The Antichrist has them against the wall, basically. And are about to be wiped out. They cry out to the Lord. He sends Messiah. They say, blessed is he who comes. And he delivers them from their enemies. He wipes out the armies of the Antichrist. He sends his angels out to gather them, all Jews from the four corners of the earth, to come to Jerusalem for a time of worship now. The battle's over. The king is here. He has conquered his enemies. His kingdom has finally come. See, the Feast of Trumpets took place back then and still today in the first of Tishri. And that corresponds to our late September, early October. And I like this. As I was studying this, back in those days, the priests would actually stand on the southwestern parapet of the temple. And he would blow the shofar. And all the Jews in the surrounding fields who were harvesting at that moment, as soon as they heard the shofar blow, they stopped harvesting, even if there were more crops left to harvest, and they immediately assembled at the temple for a time of worship. That's how it's going to be when the Lord comes back. We read in Matthew 24, verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, Know that it is near at the doors. What is near? is coming. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, there are those who interpret this passage in different ways. Some interpret verse 34 to mean that the generation that was hearing Jesus say these very words, that would be the first century generation, his disciples that were living at the time, that they would not die until everything was fulfilled. Verse 34, Assuredly I say to you, this generation, and they believe it's speaking of the generation that was living at that time, because they believe that that's what he was talking about, then they believe all these prophetic signs were already fulfilled in the first century. That was that generation, right? He said this generation will not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. So if he was talking to that first century generation, then all these signs he has just given, they've already been fulfilled in the first century. That particular doctrine is called preterism. Preterism comes from the Latin word preter, which means past. 
those who hold to this doctrine are called preterists. Now, let me just say, some very, very godly people believe this. So this is not a slam against anybody. I mean, just, you know, I disagree with it. But I want you to know there are some very solid Christians, theologians, professors, and pastors, who embrace preterism. Of course, extreme preterism is a heresy, and I don't want to get into it, but but partial preterism is a lot of a lot of godly people embrace it. All right. But preterists believe that the prophecies of Matthew 24, Revelation 6 to 19, and so on, were largely or completely fulfilled in the past. And in particular, these prophecies were fulfilled in the events leading up to and surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. Now, we here at Calvary Chapel, along with most evangelicals, we believe that the things that are laid out in Matthew 24, Revelation, and so on, are yet future, yet future. We believe that as we stand here today, we are not in the tribulation period. These signs were for the tribulation period. Therefore, they are yet future to us. They are yet future to us. It will be the signs that we have been studying that will precede Jesus' return to the planet Earth to establish the millennial kingdom. Preterists, however, believe that these things have already been fulfilled again around 70 A.D., And so they actually teach that things like the rapture, the abomination of desolation, which Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, verse 15, the coming of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, the great tribulation uh, period, they believe all of this has already taken place. In fact, preterists even believe that Jesus already came back in 70 AD. Some preterists believe he came back invisibly. But isn't that just what he said he wasn't going to do? Every eye will see me. I'm going to light up the sky with my second coming glory. Why do we read the Bible when God makes it very clear what he's trying to say? And we say, oh, no, he didn't mean that. Even though he said he was coming visibly, every eye will see him. He light the sky up with a second coming glory like the sun, like lightning that flashes across a dark sky from east to west. Every eye will see me. No, no, he didn't really mean that. He meant he's coming invisibly. I don't get that. But some preterists believe that he came back invisibly and that he came in judgment using the Roman armies as an instrument of judgment in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, because again, the Jews had rejected him as Messiah and pressured Pilate into crucifying him. However, extreme preterists, and this extreme preterism is a heresy, partial preterists like R.C. Sproul, Hank Hennigraf, they denounce uh, extreme preterism, full preterism is a heresy, all right, even though they themselves embrace some of it, okay? But extreme preterists actually believe that Jesus came back physically and literally in 70 A.D. But listen, what Jesus predicted here in Matthew 24, the signs that would precede his coming, guys, go way beyond anything that happened in the first century. I mean, world wars, worldwide famine, signs in the heavens that would precede Jesus coming to the earth to establish the kingdom. I mean, none of that happened in the first century. Others interpret verse 34 to mean that the generation that sees the fig tree bud forth, ah, they're the ones that are going to see all these things take place in the return of Christ. And they interpret the fig tree, or they used to at least, let me just tell you how they used to do this, Uh, they interpret the fig tree, see, what did he say again? Uh, He talked about the, the parable of the fig tree when the branch is already tender and puts forth its leaves, summer is near, you know that when you see this happen, the fig tree budding forth, then, then these things are going to take place, and so on. That generation will not pass away. Everything comes to pass. Okay, whatever generation sees the fig tree bud, that's the generation that will be around when he comes back. So what is the fig tree? 
the fig tree is Israel, they used to say. Well, they were on solid ground because in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, Joel 1, verses 4 to 7, Israel is likened to a fig tree. So they, they took something biblically, but they, they ran with it, and they said, well, look, the fig tree is Israel. When did it bud forth? When it became a state, 1948. Well, that generation won't pass away until the Lord returns. A generation in the Bible is about 40 years. So if you add 40 years to 1948, it gives you 1988. Subtract seven years for the tribulation period, because we're not going to be here as Christians for that. The rapture is going to take place around 1981. Oops. <laughs> hey, that was real popular in 1981 when I was a Christian. You can't believe the pamphlets and tracts and guys on TV and radio saying, this is the year. We've got it all figured out. Well, 1981 came and went. Okay, that didn't work. All right, let's see. Okay, the fig tree is Israel. Well, maybe, not 1948 when it became a nation, maybe we got to start from 1967 when it regained control of Jerusalem. All right, 1967. Add 40 years, 1967. Brings you out to 2007. Subtract seven years, tribulation period. The rapture's got to happen in 2000. We got it all figured out. Oops. That didn't work out so well again. You know, why don't we just study the word a little more deeply instead of trying to speculate, okay? What was Jesus talking about? Look, Jesus is not giving a complicated allegory. He's giving a simple analogy. Turn to Luke chapter 21. And this is why it's so important, guys, to compare Scripture with Scripture before you come to a doctrinal position. If they would have just read the parallel passage in Luke's Gospel, they would have put to rest all that nonsense. All that speculation that didn't work out. This is the same event. Of course, if you check it with Mark's gospel, which I did, the wording is almost exact as Matthew. It's Luke that gives us a little more insight into what Jesus said that really helps us to understand he's not talking about Israel as the fig tree. In Luke 21, starting in verse 29, Jesus said, Look at the fig tree and what? All trees. All trees. So, you know, he's not talking about Israel now. He's talking about a fig tree. He says, learn a lesson of the fig tree and any other tree. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. He reminded them of a commonly known fact about a fig tree. When winter comes to an end, the sap begins to flow into the branches, making them tender, and new leaves appear on the tree. Guess what? You know, summer is near. Very simple. I mean, even a child knows that a budding fig tree meant it was spring, and that summer would soon follow when the figs ripened and the harvest took place. Very simply, Jesus was saying that the generation that sees the events take place that he has just described in verses 5 to 28, okay? The signs that will take place during the tribulation period, that generation will not die without seeing Jesus return to establish his kingdom. And guys, that is the generation he's talking about. Not the generation of his day, not the generation that saw Israel become a nation or Jerusalem recaptured. The generation that sees the events take place, he has just described in Matthew 24, verses 5 to 28, 
the signs that will take place during the tribulation period, the generation that sees those signs is not going to die without seeing Jesus return to establish his kingdom. And that, folks, is the generation he's talking about, a future generation that sees those signs, the signs he's just been laying out for them. And once these events begin, nothing will stop them from leading up to the birth of the kingdom, just like once a woman goes into labor, nothing is going to stop the birth of that child. And that's why he likened the seven-year tribulation period to a woman in labor, which is going to culminate in the birth of the kingdom. Now look, as we end, the purpose of prophecy, as one person said, is not to entertain the curious, but to encourage the consecrated. Look, in verse 36 of Matthew 24, Jesus makes it clear that no one is going to know the day or the hour of his coming. However, because of all the signs he gave us to look for, his coming should not catch us by surprise either, unless, listen, we are not being vigilant and watching for his coming. And let me just say this, and I've said it before, let me say it again. There's a difference between waiting for Jesus coming and watching for Jesus coming. I can, somebody tells me I'm, I'm, I'm coming over for a visit, okay, uh, somewhere around 7 o'clock. I am waiting for their coming, but I get busy. A few things around the house I want to take care of. I get caught up in my little chores, and they come and catch me by surprise. But if I'm watching for their coming, they're not going to catch me by surprise. The Bible admonishes us to watch for Jesus' coming. And the only way you can watch for Jesus' coming is if he was to give you signs to look for that point to his coming. Here is the danger with a doctrine like preterism. And guys, there are so many goofy doctrines coming down the pike that are taking people's eyes off of Jesus coming. Another one is kingdom now theology. Look, there is no such thing as a rapture. That's escapist mentality. Uh, We're called by God to work real hard by electing Christians into office. We're called by God to build the kingdom right now, to establish it. And when we do, Jesus will come back and take charge of it. Again, that takes my eyes off of Jesus. Uh, It gets me looking and working in the political process. Preterism. Isn't it interesting at a time in the church's history when Jesus Christ is coming so soon? I mean, sooner than ever before. A time when we ought to be watching more diligently than we ever have before as Christians. Isn't it the stroke of Satan who doesn't want us to be watching to hit the church with a doctrine that basically says, oh, all these signs that you're looking for, they've already happened in the first century. Oh, okay, well, I guess I'll just then tend to my business and eat and drink and be merry and so on because, you know, whatever. It's just tragic to me how the church buys into these things. And I'm not saying that the people that have bought into them are not God-fearing people that love the Lord. I'm not saying that. But anything, and I don't care who you are. You can be a professor. You can be a a, a well-known Christian author. I don't care who you are. If you buy into a doctrine that takes people's eyes off the coming of Jesus, which means you take them their eyes off of the signs that point to his coming, that's wrong. It's wrong. And it's counterproductive to what the Lord has commanded us to do prior to his return, which is to be watching vigilantly for his return. 
So I just want to encourage you guys not to get swept into these winds of doctrine that are blowing through the church. Just stay focused on the simple teaching of God's word. If you do, I believe you won't be misled. We just need to stick with it. You know, people say, yes, I know it seems to say this, but let me tell you, oh, and they give you this big deal and they've got it all figured out. And boy, it's so different from what the Bible seems to be clearly saying. Don't buy into that. Just stay with the simple truth of God's word and be watching diligently for his return. The signs are all there. His coming is near, even at the door. And may we be watching when he comes, that he might say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. An evil servant says, my Lord delays his coming. A good servant says, I'm watching for my Lord's return. And I'm not getting entangled with the cares of this life. I am working diligently to continue to do the work he's called me to do. So may God give us grace to stay focused. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, which gives us many signs to look for. And give us grace, Lord, to just keep our eyes on the signs, knowing that your coming is near. Give us grace not to be entangled with the cares of this life, but to be serving you diligently, witnessing for you, Lord, constantly, that we might see many saved before you return. We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name.